And continue to pray for the bands. I think that's a very important ministry uh, as we support them this week. I was surprised to uh, read this morning of, um, I won't mention the school, but it's fairly well known. And within inside the school hall, or the school teaching facility, uh, faculty, they have what they call conservative evangelical uh, leaders. And when they teach uh, new students about Scripture, they teach from a standpoint of teaching inerrancy of Scripture and verbal inspiration. But also within the faculty, they have what they call evangelicals who teach limited errancy. And I'm thinking, oh, wow. So what the bands are doing is great in, in, in working through with curriculum to establish people so that people understand that we approach the Word of God, we approach an inerrant Word of God that has been given to us to encourage us and on our walk and growing to be more like Christ. I like what Alistair Begg had to say about Jonah. Alistair Begg had to say this, God delights in saving people. What a wonderful truth to start off with. A thought to, to keep in the back of our minds as we begin this journey and trek as we work through the book of Jonah. Let's just open up in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning for your love and your graciousness. Father, we thank you that you are concerned with every detail in our lives. And that we are not left to, to wander on our own. But Father, you are there to guide that you've given us the Holy Spirit to help guide us, and you've given us our, your word, and that we can turn to your word, and through your spirit you can encourage us, and you can help us understand and make sense of the life that we find ourselves in. Father, we just ask that this morning you'll help us to push away the concerns of the week to come and the week past to focus in on your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Anyone who knows me very well knows that to drive with me, to actually get in the car and be a passenger with me, is an adventure. I like road trips. And that's possibly because I grew up in that era of Sunday afternoon drives, if anybody remembers that. And that was an event. Almost every Sunday afternoon, we I guess it was cheap entertainment, we'd get in the car and we would go somewhere. Now, sometimes there was a destination. We would go visit a relative who owned a farm, and that would be fun to go out on the farm for an afternoon. Sometimes it was just to another boring relative who owned a house like us. And sometimes it was to a, a, a fruit market. Uh, to, you couldn't shop on Sunday, but you could go to the fruit market. Um, so sometimes it would be going to one of those fresh fruit markets. And other times it was just to go on a road that went somewhere and to find where the end was. I can say that I have driven almost every road between here and London in the last while, and I know where each one of them goes, but I must say that in my journey of back and forth, there are still a few, especially to the north, because I have done some southern driving, there are still some roads that I go, I wonder where that one goes. Well, my first infamous drive was in a late March evening, afternoon, late afternoon. And I think it was either Western Illinois or it was Iowa. So I used to work with a, a touring group called Friendship Ministries, and we were working in schools that day in this small town. And when we finished doing our school programs, which was a, a program on drugs, 
uh, not how to use drugs, on how to stay away from them. Uh, so we had finished that up, and um, I was given the directions to where we were to go for dinner. It was out on a farm outside of town, and I drove the highway coach, so I got the directions. This is where I was supposed to go, head west out of town, turn into the greenhouse, go down so far, and turn again, and you'll be at the farm. So we had the name of the farm with us uh, and a description of the farm. So we loaded up the bus. We headed out of town west, and I came to a greenhouse one word, and I said, okay, I'll turn here. So I turned. I went X number of roads like I was supposed to. I, I made my left turn, and we're good. We're looking for this mailbox and this description of the farm. But I began to notice that the road I was on, there were, were no houses. So we continued down a little bit farther. And not only were there no houses, all of a sudden, the road ceased to be plowed. And there were snowdrifts across the road still. So I just geared down, 14 tons of metal, low gear, and we just plowed through the snowdrifts. Went a couple more miles, and finally I saw a house. And I could see that the road on the other side of the house was clear. So I thought, okay. So I put the nose of the bus towards their driveway, and through the barnyard I went, and out down the driveway and onto the road and made my turn. I was not stopping, although I could see that out of the barn was this curious farmer looking with his mouth in awe, and on the other side of the driveway, what looked to be the kitchen window was a mom and a few kids, also with their mouth hanging down, going, huh? I was not stopping. There was no way. I let them stare and continued on my way. Well, I found out later that that particular road doesn't get plowed sort of after November. And it likely had not been plowed since that point. And it was usually closed. Well, the farmer that informed me of that, I just looked at him and said, well, you know what? It's open now. So, as we moved away from that farm, all of a sudden, I coming to the stop sign, and I get waved down by a pickup truck with a father and son. So I stopped, and they looked at me, and they said, where are you going? You're lost, aren't you? Oh, yeah, boy, am I lost now. And, and the strange part was another pickup pulled up, and he yelled out to the other guy. He says, oh, I see you found the bus. And I thought, oh, great, words got out that I'm lost already. Um, so we told him where we're headed, and he says, oh, I know the place. So he gave us direction, so off we headed to the farm, pulled down the driveway, and I honked the air horn, and, you know, we're late for supper now by a good few hours. Pull in, and as I pull up, there stands a, 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 a curious lot of people staring at me. Well, you guessed it. I was at the wrong farm still. <laughs> so he said, you're close. And he pointed out to the other direction. He says, it's over there. It's around the concession, which was another two miles. So finally we got there to a bunch of laughter and uh, carrying on, and they thought it was quite hilarious. The dinner was still warm in the oven, um, but oh, for clear directions to know where to go to. The next morning, as we headed back into town to the church this time, I saw the greenhouse 
two words, which would have shortened my adventurous drive up by quite a bit. Anyhow, last week we touched on the first few verses of Jonah, where God gave clear direction to Jonah. But before we pick up where we left off, I want to make a few introductory comments. First, remember that Jonah is written for us, not to us. So when we approach Jonah, we need to begin to look at how it was in the ancient Near East, what their culture was like. It's imperative that we approach the text that way, and we don't approach the text from our culture of Canada in 2023. That's why we looked at what we did last week, to try to understand the context and the culture to which Jonah lived. Secondly, we need to understand that Jonah is literature, that it is crafted to relate certain theological and spiritual truths to us. And that's where high school English class will come in handy this morning, because Jonah makes uh, use of two literary devices. The author uses irony, and the author uses satire. And here's where flashcards might come in handy. Um, Think back to a a simple definition of satire. Being biting ridicule to highlight a particular truth. Uh, Mark Yarborough, in his commentary, defined it this way. Satire pokes the reader in the eye to then reveal the obvious flaw in one's thinking. Now we need a definition for for irony. It's a contrast between an expectation and reality. It's it's the difference between what something appears to mean and its literal meaning. One dictionary said this, it is a situation or an event that seems deliberately contrary to what one expects and is often amusing as a result. You can think of every situational comedy that has ever run on television. And, and when, the, when the person gets called into the boss expecting a, a raise or a promotion, only to find out that either their arch nemesis at work is now their boss or they've been fired or laid off. That's irony. Well, with that in mind, if you've not opened your Bibles already, open your Bible and join with me in Jonah. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. Jonah 1, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying... Now by this time in the life of Jonah, it was established that he was a prophet. He was a prophet of the Lord. This was not his first go around in regards to getting instruction from God. Remember, we went to 2 Kings chapter 14 last week, and there we learned that Israel's borders increased under King Jeroboam, who was an evil king, Jeroboam II. And they increased as God said it would through the prophet Jonah. That was verse 25. So last week, this mention of Jonah in 2 Kings helps us set the historical context of the book. Now there's another mention of Jonah in the Bible, this time in Matthew chapter 12, that helps set the historicity of the events of the book. Just listen as I read from Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 41. Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. 
But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus treats Jonah and the story of Jonah as historical fact. There's no question the historicity of Jonah. It's not up for debate. And that's important because Jonah takes some wild turns in the tale. Now, verse 1 tells us, excuse me, verse 1 tells us about the relationship between the two main characters. Verse 2 presents the action from which the whole story will pivot from. Verse 2, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Arise and go to Nineveh. Seems simple enough. God instructed Elijah in a very similar manner. Back in 1 Kings 17, he says this, Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose, and he went up to Zarephath. And again in the next chapter, in Kings 18, 1 Kings 18, After many days the word of the Lord came to Elijah. In the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went up to show himself to Ahab. There's a pattern here, right? God speaks. Prophet listens to God and does what he's asked of him. So God speaks. Prophet listens. Prophet goes. After all, the prophet is supposed to be a model of obedience. Even disobedient Israel understood this. Now, our culture is very similar. Now, I'll grant you, our culture loves those gotcha moments for whatever we do wrong, and they like to throw it back at the church and say, well, you bunch of hypocrites. That's why it's a big deal when a pastor gets caught with his handy in the cookie jar, whether it's something to do with finances or regarding sexual morality. The concept is well understood. God speaks, you obey it. So Jonah's call was was to foreign missions. Follow as I read verse 2 again. But this time, I'm going to read it from the CSB. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh, and preach against it because their evil has come up before me. That's a familiar ring to it, doesn't it? At least it did when I read it. I thought, wait a second. This verse almost echoes for me something I've read in Matthew. Something that we call the Great Commission. could almost be considered a parallel. Listen to the concept out of Matthew chapter 28. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So Jonah's commissioning, his authority came from God. Arise and get up. Go. Our commissioning, our authority is given to us by God the Son. 
go therefore. The message is very real in the sense that we are to preach against the evils of the world. We are to preach repentance. See, a prophet's call was to call the people back to the covenant. Call the people back to obedience to the law. And, and last week, we discussed the idea that Israel was to be a light to the nations. Jonah is an example of that calling. So Jonah was to, to get up and go. Where was he to go? Well, he was to go to Nineveh. That's about 805 kilometers as the crow flies. Google Maps states that the walking route on that type of journey would be 1,081 kilometers, or about 35 days of walking for the average person. So Jonah had plenty of time to map out his sermon, what he was going to preach. Matter of fact, Jonah had enough time that he could scribe a short series of, for the Ninevites. So why was he going? Well, like Sodom and Gomorrah, Nineveh's evil had come up to God's attention. Now, don't think that in terms that, well, God wasn't aware of what was going on or he hadn't noticed. God was very aware of what was going on in Nineveh. Think more in terms of grace. But there always comes a point where the Lord says, enough is enough. And that's exactly where Nineveh finds himself at this point in their history. Enough was enough. And now God had been patient now he was going to send in a prophet. And that prophet was going to explain the judgment that was to come. Now the word here, evil, in the original, this is very interesting. It can be translated as distress or disaster. For their, distresses has cut, for their distress has come before me. Or for their disaster has come before me. When evil becomes so pervasive in a culture, in any culture, we could classify that culture as a disaster. And when an evil culture then becomes distressing for those who live in it, that's why we say a culture can eventually turn on itself. Or as the popular idiom says, they begin to eat their own. I just recently finished reading a book Tears of My Soul. I don't know if anybody's read that one. It's about a young man in Cambodia who was a teen at the time, and he survives the killing fields of Cambodia. Now, that was during the, the reign of the Khmer Rouge regime. The culture was so evil, and it began to turn on itself, that it cost the lives of one and a half to two million Cambodians. That was out of a population of only eight million people over a period of five years. It becomes distressing. It's a disaster. Now, in, in, the, in the book, the, the young man, the young teen becomes a believer. He immigrates to Canada. He's then trained theologically here. And then he goes back. Uh, he becomes a citizen first. And then he goes back to Cambodia to minister to the very people that had killed his family. Well, Jonah, too, was being sent to an evil culture, a country which with Israel had tensions with, political tensions. Twice in the, in the near past, Assyria had demanded and received tribute from Israel, that bully protection plan or insurance plan. So as the reader finishes verse 2, 
the writer has set us up. The first time we read Jonah, if you've never read it before, the first time you read through Jonah, there's an expectation. That expectation is God gives direction that then the prophet, being a man of God, will, will simply obey. If you've never, ever read this account before, the expectation is that Jonah is going to go out. He's going to buy the best pair of New Balance shoes that he can find. He's going to fill his Swiss gear backpack. He's going to grab his Google Maps scroll. And he's going to set out on his journey. That is the expectation. That journey is about the same distance if we were all to leave here today and start walking to Quebec City, old Quebec City. That's how far of a journey Jonah had before him. But those who have read Jonah or who've watched the movie know that this transition point here points to one of irony. What we expect is, is not what we get. Look at verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and he went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Verse 2 and 3 actually have a play on words in the original and it sets the contrast for us. Instead of arise and go to Nineveh, we get Jonah's, Jonah rose to flee and he went to flee to Tarshish. Now that's over 4,800 kilometers. It's southern and western Spain. So that's in the opposite direction. Just understand how far that is. That's like us getting together again here at the church we're going to set off on the same journey. Well, we're headed to Yellowknife, Northwest Territories. The idea of running to Tarshish is also presented in the very short span three times. But what's most ridiculous, which is also presented twice for us, is Jonah's reasoning. It's ridiculous. Why is he going to Tarshish? To flee to Tarshish from the presence of of the Lord. This is the first hint of, of satire to us. By this time in the life of Israel, the Psalter was beginning to be formed. Might not have been completed, but there was something there. And, and surely Jonah would have sung or repeated the words from Psalm 139, which were written by David. Let me read them to you. Starting in verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. The prophet of Jonah should have understood that you cannot run away from his presence. And if you try running away from his presence, it, it cannot be good. The outcome just can't be good. But, but Jonah makes up his mind, and he is going to be the first and do his best to successfully run from God. Notice the contrast presented here. When we think of getting close to God, we do what? We, we lift our voices to heaven in praise. Or we lift our voices 
to heaven in prayer. And when someone graduates from here to heaven, we think of terms of heaven as up. However, when one runs from God, when one distances themselves from their Creator, from God, there's only one direction to go. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and he went down into it to go to them with Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. And again, we're going to read in verse 5, Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship. Now Jonah's first leg on his journey, on his escape from God, was a three-day journey to Joppa. Looking for a ship, going to Tarshish to buy a ticket, boarding the ship, and he goes down below deck as if he wants no one to see him leaving port. Not to give this away, but Jonah's going to go down a few more times as we read. So, with Jonah on his way, at this point he must be feeling pretty good about his plan. So far it's all worked out as he had hoped it would. He's in the ship, he's on his way to Tarshish, he's made it so far. But, we're never told why Jonah wants to flee. That isn't revealed to us yet. That comes later. But Jonah's on his way. So, as the reader, we all know the satire here. Jonah thinks he's getting away from something. But he's not. Verse 4 opens up with a very powerful truth for all followers of God. But, the eventful boat ride might carry a little bit more of a poke in the eye to Jonah for us in the New Testament reader. Look with me at verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so the ship threatened to break up. Our, our, our minds go back to think of this thought. How can one ever escape from the creator of the universe. You, his creation, live in that very same universe that he created. And as a New Testament believer, my mind goes back to thinking of this. Jonah, what were you thinking? The God that could calm the waters of the Sea of Galilee can certainly cause the storm in the Mediterranean. So remember though, Jonah had gone into the boat and he was down below deck in the hall somewhere. So the first report of the storm that we get comes from those up top. Those experiencing the storm face to face, as it might be. Look at verse 5. Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. What irony. So we have the experienced sailors up on deck in full panic mode, crying out to various gods, trying to get their attention. It, it, it reminds you of Elijah's encounter with the prophets of Baal in, in 1 Kings 18. And when the crying out and the wailing to the gods above didn't work for them, they then began to unload their cargo and dump their cargo into the sea. 
The idea is to buoy the ship so that the waves don't crash over and onto the deck and below. So they try to lighten their load to make it easier for them to survive and that, so they don't go down. But in all the chaos on board the ship, in the storm, where's Jonah? Where's the landlubber? Jonah, the prophet of God, is fast asleep in the recesses of the bowels of the boat. A couple of truths to note here. It's said that there are no atheists in foxholes. That when men find themselves in battle, everybody believes in God. And not to make light of what happened a couple of weeks ago with the Buffalo Bills player. And, and thankful that he has regained much of what he lost and he's doing well. But when he went down with that cardiac arrest, I have never seen so many people pray or offer up a prayer since September 11th, 2001. There's something about a crisis. When a man or woman comes face to face and they don't know what to do, there's something about that that brings alive Ecclesiastes 3.11 where it says this, He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, He puts eternity into man's heart. Second, our sin can affect others. Too often we think of sin as, and the consequences of sin in an isolated manner. But that's not a reality. See, if a spouse is to carry on an affair, there are consequences beyond the spouse. There are spiritual consequences of hurting themselves. There's possibility of physical consequences through a disease. The knots not forget the damage done to the person that they've carried the affair on with. And then there's a ripple effect from there. It's larger than just them because there's spouses involved. There may be children involved. Of, of any age, it affects children. What about the parental relationship damage between them and their parents and the trust that has been broken? And if they're involved in a church... There's also possible damage at work. And of course, the family finances all around take a trashing. The point is, sin is never in isolation. Your sin affects others. Think back to Achan's sin in the book of Joshua. It resulted in the defeat of an AI of the Israeli army. There are others that we could go through. I, I don't want to go down a rabbit hole or a rabbit trail. It should survive. Just so there are consequences to sin, and it's far-reaching. And, and it would just have to suffice to say, that's how sin works. Your sin will affect others. Well, back to the chaos in the Mediterranean. Verse 6. So the captain came and said to him, so he goes down and finds Jonah, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God, uh, the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. So in unbelief, the captain finds Jonah asleep. Sound asleep. But he uses the same word that God uses earlier with Jonah. Arise, get up. We've tried all our gods. Nothing's working. How about your God? The pagans are praying. The prophet is sleeping. And note, 
The text never ever tells us that Jonah begins to pray. It never tells us Jonah starts praying. Look at verse 7. And they said to one another, Come up, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. See, as the boat continued to be threatened, and the sailors turned to ancient customs of casting lots. Well, it's true that casting lots is used in Scripture from time to time. Let me quote something from gotquestions.org because I think they concisely handled this. The New Testament nowhere instructs Christians to use a method similar to casting lots to help with decision-making. Now that we have, complete, have the completed Word of God, as well as the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to guide us, there's no reason for us to be using games of chance to make decisions. The Word of the Spirit and prayer are sufficient for discerning God's will today, not, not casting lots, rolling dice, or flipping coins. And that is important to know because there seems to be a movement in North America right now where they are picking elders of churches by casting lots. But regardless of the theological correctness of casting lots, God used it for His purposes. Jonah lost, and the crew knew now who to blame. The storm was because of Jonah, which was correct. But now, with that new knowledge that they have, look at the questions that begin to flow. Verse 8, Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where did you come from? What is your country? And, and what people are you? What an awkward situation to be in. The prophet of God, the preacher from Gath Heifer, is now receiving, is on the receiving end of a rebuke, a rebuke from pagans. Have you ever been there? Have you ever done something you know is not quite right or maybe you shouldn't have done it and you get rebuked from an unbeliever? I can tell you from experience, it's not fun. Doing something or saying something that you know better or should have known better and that an unbeliever corrects you. The truth nugget here is God can use unbelievers to correct a believer. God will get hold of you one way or another. I often think of, of Numbers 22 where Balaam keeps stubbornly going and finally God allows the donkey to speak up to correct him. God can use people to correct us. Jonah answers them in verse 9. And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. So Jonah owns up to who he is. I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. That's who's caused the storm. He, he acknowledges God's sovereignty, but he never omits guilt. Only a proclamation of whom he serves, only a proclamation of the one true God, the proclamation, though, does trigger the sailors' minds to an event that happened before the nap. Verse 10, Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this 
that you have done. For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Now the pieces of the puzzle begin to come together for the sailors. When the weather was calm, at the start of the voyage, they had chatted with Jonah. Where was Jonah going? Why was he going on such a long trip? Well, to get out of the presence of God. Now, perhaps for the sailors, they just thought, well, yeah, that makes sense because there were all these local deities all over the place. And, and so if you wanted to get away from your local deity, you, you just go somewhere else. But somehow, Jonah's God was able to track him down. Jonah had journeyed three days to Joppa, plus whatever time that they had been at sea before the storm started. And his God was able to find him. So Jonah not only stood before the sailors as they questioned him uh, what sin he committed, he also stood there with this huge credibility gap. He had told the sailors that he feared the Lord, but his actions didn't match up. There was a credibility gap. The text asks us the same question. Do you have a credibility gap? Do do your words and your actions match up with your profession of Christ? Israel had a credibility gap. They, They were to be a light to the nations, a testimony of God's grace and salvation to all the earth. And they fell short, especially under Jeroboam too. And they didn't know at this point, but just like Nineveh, their time was short too. It would only be a short time before God judged them after giving the people chance after chance after chance. You and I are to be a light to the world around us. And by extension, the church made up of people is to be a light to the world. So if if the people in the church have a credibility gap, the church has a credibility gap. Works like this. I can go into a local hardware store, have a conversation with somebody, might even talk about the gospel of Christ and salvation and repentance and and share with with the clerk that I see week after week after week after week. And I can leave. And then somebody else from the church can come in and they can act towards that clerk like a selfish jerk. And if they know we go to the same church, well, we have a credibility gap. There's an issue. Same thing if you have someone in your church that's living in sin and the church never wants to deal with it and the community knows there's a credibility gap. Deficit in churches come from the collective, the local body. It might not seem fair, but that's how sin works. In the Christian life, you're either growing in maturity Or you're like Jonah, and you're going down, and you're going down, 
and you're going down. I've heard people talk about becoming stagnant in their Christian walk. Well, that's not healthy because stagnant water produces mosquitoes and disease. It's bad water. We have to remember for there not to be a credibility gap is we need to be growing in our relationship with Jesus Christ. But that takes time. That takes effort. That takes focus. Jonah had a credibility gap because it seems like he stopped growing, and we'll find out what he stopped growing in later. But do you live today with a credibility gap? Do your actions and what you do and how you live your life match up to your profession of Jesus Christ? If you're living with a credibility gap, credibility gap, you need to make strides to close that gap in prayer and in learning the Word of God and understanding how you should be living before your God. That's the only way we'll be witnesses to a community around us. Now, they might not like what we believe, but at least we'll be living what we believe, and the rest will be up to God. But to continue to grow in Christ takes time. It takes energy. It's actually thankful. One person did email back. And we were, actually, two people contacted me. I'm not saying you all have to email me over this, but it was nice to hear a couple of people say they really appreciated the reading guides sent out over the, over the holiday break of taking the challenge of reading either a large portion or the New Testament or the Old Testament or the whole Bible as part of their understanding of faith and to get a, a picture of what Scripture is. But do we take the time, and I know it's hard. Life gets in the way, and there'll be days that you'll miss. But do you take the time each day to spend time with the Lord and say, okay. And if you're not a reader... Man, you can get apps on your phone and it'll read the Bible to you. And if you have trouble studying, you can study along with other people. Either find a buddy in the church or talk to somebody. There's all kinds of great things to help us grow in our faith and become more like Christ. All of us in some area of our lives have credibility gaps. The challenge for you and I is to grow and to mature and to be more like Christ when January 2024 comes around than we were in January 2023. And it's a slow process. It doesn't happen overnight. And you might not even notice it. And that's why it's so nice when we encourage each other. And we're not fishing for compliments. But if, if you having an impact or have a close relationship with somebody, of coming along saying, saying, I've noticed a change in you. I've noticed a difference. Because sometimes it's hard for us to see change. It's hard for us to see, hey, I have grown or I have changed. Once in a while we notice, but what's it like when someone comes alongside you and something happens and you're able just to turn the other cheek and you don't have to respond back? And either your wife or maybe your child or somebody close to you goes, you know, a couple of years ago you would have bit their head off. But I noticed you didn't. 
So it's nice to have those people that will walk that journey with us and help us to grow like Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the book of Jonah. Father, just for the reminder that the word of God, your word is there, and that we need to get up. And yes, we need to go and we need to share the gospel with others, but we need to rise from the sleep and to mature and to become more like Jesus Christ. And yes, it can be difficult, Lord. I pray that for those here in the church that want to grow, that you will encourage their heart and that they will seek out to match up with uh, somebody more spiritually mature that they see on a regular basis that, that they can grow. Or they might participate in, in the Sunday school or, or other ways or, or, or find um, something so much online, Lord, that you'll just lead them to a place where they can learn to grow and to challenge themselves, to understand your word, to be more like you. And in being more like you, that we can be a witness to others in the community to share and to show that God is alive and well and working in our lives. And because of that, it makes a difference. And it makes a difference of how we live and how we interact and how we love one another. So, Father, we thank you for Jonah, for his even in his disobedience, we can learn to be obedient. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.